This is the foundational means that the Spirit uses in our life to grow us is by illumining to us the truth of the words that He has written. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So beginning from verse 13 here, we begin with the phrase here that we've seen before. Paul says, here comes the request, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. So he refers again to Jesus as the God of, uh, or I'm sorry, as to, he refers to the Father as the God of Jesus. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, we spent a good deal of time talking about how Paul says the same thing there, basically the same phrase in chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we went through verse 3, we talked at length about God the Father being referred to as the God of Jesus. That the God of our of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. So here he refers to him not just as the Father, as the God of the Father, but also the Father of glory, which also makes sense for us because the first section, the, the section of praise, spent a good deal of time telling us that all of this, the, the apex, the, the final goal of all of that was the glory of the Father. Three times Paul says this, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His grace, to the praise of His glory, three times Paul says that that is the ultimate goal, the, the glory of the Father. So here he refers to Him again as the Father of glory. And here comes the request. Here's the request. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. That's the request. That's the basis of Paul's prayer. That's what he's asking God to do. And then a little bit later in the text, there's going to be three implications. If God grants that request, there's going to be three implications of that that we'll work through in coming weeks. But this morning we're looking at this request that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. So clearly, I think when Paul writes these words, Paul, again, he is the Rabbi Shaul who is deeply steeped in what we would call Old Testament theology. And I think certainly probably what he, what he has in mind here is places like Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, where we read that the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him, Him being the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Clearly, passages such as this are heavy in Paul's mind as he writes this. He writes that the Spirit the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him may be given to the Ephesians. So as he talks about the spirit of wisdom and revelation, wisdom and revelation would be helpful to just remind ourselves of a couple of definitions here. 
Wisdom, I like to use the definition of, a wis- of wisdom that goes like this. Wisdom is the skill of using the revealed knowledge of God wisely or effectively in order to live well in a fallen world. We live well in a fallen world by means of putting into place the revealed knowledge of God in a way that's effective in our life. That's, that's wisdom. Living well in a, in a fallen world by means of the Word of God. So clearly that comes from God. The revealed Word of God must come to us in order for us to live well in light of that revealed Word. And then secondly, the word revelation. These are the two things that Paul asks for. Wisdom and revelation. Now, revelation, the word literally means unfolding. And we also see in there just just the, the word reveal. Revelation refers to knowledge or understanding that must be given to us by God. Now, when we see this word in the Bible, that's always what it means. It always means knowledge or understanding that comes from God. It's never a type of knowledge or understanding that we gain for ourselves or that we can come to some place of understanding by thinking or contemplating or working out a problem. We might use that word today in the modern sense to mean something like that. We might say, you know, I, I was thinking about this and I had a revelation. And what we mean is that I just sort of came to an understanding on my own. But when we find this word in the Bible, it never means that. When we find this word in the Bible, it always means wisdom, understanding, knowledge that God gives to us, that He unfolds for us, that He shows to us. It comes from outside of ourself. So both of these things, wisdom and revelation, we understand are something that God must give to us. So Paul's praying that God would give to the Ephesians these two things that must come from God, wisdom and revelation. So he asked God to give this spirit of wisdom and revelation uh, in the knowledge of Him. So here we come up, up to the first question that we must wrestle with, the first difficulty in the text. And that difficulty is this. When we see this word spirit, what does it mean? Does it mean capital S spirit, as in the Holy Spirit, the person? Or does it mean lowercase spirit, or to put it another way, attitude or disposition? So the word is used both ways in Scripture, both Old Testament and New. Sometimes it refers to an attitude or disposition or a way of thinking about things or a way of looking at things. Jesus, in fact, uses it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. Jesus doesn't mean that they're, that they're poor of the Holy Spirit. He means that there's an attitude, a disposition of poor in spirit. Paul uses it the same way as well. So we find it used to, to describe sort of an attitude or disposition. But we also use, see it used to describe, obviously, the uh, not to describe, but to refer to the Holy Spirit, the, the third person of the Godhead. Now, the original Greek in which this was written didn't have capital letters. So Paul didn't have a way of telling us by capitalizing or not capitalizing whether he was referring to the person of the Spirit or not. But as a general rule, when we come across this word in Scripture with what is called uh, the, the definite article, just the word the, then that will refer to the person of the Holy Spirit. When we see in the text the Spirit, then that, when it occurs that way in the original, indicates for us 
the person of the Holy Spirit. When we find it without the article, then in general that refers to not the person of the Holy Spirit, but an attitude or a disposition. Now, Paul did not use the definite article here. And so for that reason, some of our, of our translations will leave it uncapitalized. The King James, for example, will leave it uncapitalized, but then it supplies the, the definite article, the. So I'm not sure what the thought process was there. But the ESV from which we are reading will supply the definite article and capitalize the word spirit. Why is that? I think that's the right understanding. I think that what Paul is referring to here is not an attitude of wisdom or revelation or a disposition of wisdom or revelation, but instead Paul is referring to a person, the person who gives wisdom and revelation, the person who brings wisdom and revelation In other words, the Holy Spirit. Even though Paul did not use the definite article, I think that this is what he means. Now let me offer some reasons for that and then we'll keep moving. First of all, if Paul does mean the person of the Holy Spirit here without using the word the, it wouldn't be the only time he did that. There are other instances in which Paul, in fact, a little bit later in Ephesians, he'll do that. He will will clearly refer to the Holy Spirit without using the article. So this wouldn't be the only time he does this. But more importantly, I think that, it, that the, 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 the biblical testimony is clear. Whenever we speak of wisdom and revelation, we speak of it as a gift from God. It's something God gives to us. There is no attitude of revelation in the Bible. There's no attitude of wisdom in the Bible. Those are things that come from God. Secondly, we see also that the letter to the Ephesians is very, very Trinitarian, meaning that Paul, with great regularity, likes to use the the triad, the Trinity of the Father, Son, Spirit in his writings to the Ephesians. He's already done it in the first section. And if we look closely at the verses that we're looking at here, we've noticed that Paul's already used, he's already spoken of, the Father and the Son. Look at verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, so there's Father, and then Lord Jesus Christ, Son, again, Father of glory. So it would make sense that from from there, Paul is going to now mention the Spirit. So those are a couple of reasons that I think are helpful. Paul's tendency to use Trinitarian formulas in Ephesians. Also, Paul's, or not Paul's, but the Bible's constant testimony, complete testimony that wisdom and revelation, they're not an attitude that we arrive at. There's something that the Spirit gives to us. But then, more importantly, and here's really important, as we flesh out this text, as we flesh out the meaning of this text, I think it'll be clear to all of us that Paul has to mean the person of the Holy Spirit. He can't be asking God to give the Ephesians an attitude of revelation or a disposition of wisdom. That can't be what Paul is asking for. As the text unfolds itself to us, we will see that this ha- that Paul has to be talking about the Spirit. So we're going to go on that understanding that Paul is referring to the Holy Spirit. His prayer is that God will give the Holy Spirit The Spirit who gives wisdom, the Spirit who gives revelation, He will give this to the Ephesians. Now notice with me also this phrase, 
having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now, we'll really get to that next week as we work out what the knowledge of him, what Paul's saying there. But just to notice here that having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that's a beautiful poetic way of Paul speaking to the heart, which in biblical languages, again, we'll get to this next week, but in biblical language, the heart is the seat of the person, the, the soul, the very essence of a person. And the eyes of the heart enlightened. Obviously, that's not speaking about literal physical eyes on our hearts, but it's speaking of a condition, having. Paul uses here what we would call a present participle, having. So Paul's not asking that God would enlighten the eyes of their heart. He's recognizing. He's saying, I make this request and I, and I recognize that you have, that they are in a state of having the eyes of their heart enlightened. It's describing a condition that gives meaning to the phrase that Paul is going to use. That's what a present participle does. Like, Let me give an example. If I were to say something like this, if I were to say having a profound love of chocolate, she ate the whole bag of M&M's. So having a profound love of chocolate is a form of the verb that is, is giving a reason, a basis for the rest of the sentence. Having this profound love of chocolate is the reason why she ate the whole bag. Now, in the same way, Paul says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, Paul asks that God would give this spirit of wisdom and revelation. So let's recognize that, that this is the work of the Spirit, the Spirit's work of illumination, the Spirit's work of illumining or enlightening us to the truth of Scripture. This is, this is the Spirit's central role in our sanctification, in our growth. His central role is to illumine our hearts, to illumine our minds to the truth of His Word. We see that this is from the Scriptures. This, this is the basis of the New Covenant. In the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, we read these words, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And this is the covenant. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord for they shall all know me. So that's, that language there speaks to us of the illumination work of the Spirit in our hearts. We don't need this external teacher to verify for us the truth of God's Word because the Spirit does that work in our hearts. He illumines us. The illumination of the Spirit is how we enter into the Christian life. It is how re 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 redemption comes to us. Remember Jesus' words to Nicodemus? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. That conversation with Nicodemus in which Jesus says to him in John chapter 3, verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot, and notice that word, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this is the Spirit's work of illumination, and this is the foundational means that the Spirit uses in our life to grow us, to progress us in our faith, is by illumining to us the truth of the words that He has written, the truth of the Scriptures to us. Now, what's interesting to me is how Jesus sort of foreshadows the Spirit's work of illumination. In Jesus' earthly ministry, 
we don't really see him giving a lot of illumination into the scriptures. In fact, what we see is oftentimes just the opposite. We see Jesus teaching people and they don't understand what he's saying. And then he several times will we'll see him say things like having eyes to see you don't see or ears you can't hear. And then Jesus teaches in parables and he says the reason I teach in parables is so that some will understand and others won't understand. And so we, we even see the disciples not understanding. Jesus talks about beware the leaven of the Pharisees and they think that he's talking about how they forgot bread and over and over. So we see Jesus teaching, but we see, although his words are life changing words, we also see a lack of understanding. We also we also see confusion. We don't see Jesus opening the scriptures to people, to their minds until this is interesting, until Jesus is risen. And it's just a short time before he ascends to heaven and sends the spirit. And remember in Luke's uh, Gospel of Luke and then his book of Acts, we remember the beginning of Acts where Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit continued to do what Jesus begun or began to do. So the Holy Spirit comes and continues Jesus' work. But then at the end of the Gospel of Luke, we see Jesus actually foreshadowing what the Spirit's going to come and do. It all takes place in chapter 24. Remember that episode on the road to Emmaus. These disciples are walking to Emmaus and Jesus comes along beside them and he we're told that they say, did not our hearts burn while he opened the scriptures to us? And again, later we see the same thing again, how he opened the scriptures, opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This is Jesus sort of a, as a precursor or a foreshadowing of what the Spirit is going to come in Acts chapter 2 to do. This illumining work of opening our minds to the Scriptures. Now, Paul talks extensively about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In fact, that whole chapter is dealing with the illumining work of the Spirit. Paul writes these words, For who knows a person's hearts, a person's thoughts, I'm sorry, except the Spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things given freely to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly or foolishness to him. He doesn't, he's not able to understand them. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So Paul here is dealing extensively with the illumination work of the Spirit. We remember also the illumining work of the Spirit in the conversion, for example, the conversion of Lydia in Philippi in Acts chapter 16, where the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord did a work. The Lord meaning the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit, did the work in her heart to open her heart to the things that Paul was saying. Or Psalm 119. Psalm 119, the entire psalm, is dealing with the Word of God. The whole psalm is about the Word of God. And throughout Psalm 119, we see references to not just the Word of God, but to the Spirit's work of opening the Word of God to His people. For example, verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. 
Or verse 34, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. So we see again and again these references to the illumining work of the Spirit. And this is what the Spirit does above all other things in the life of the believer to grow the believer, to progress the believer, to make the believer more like Christ is the, is the Spirit having given us the Word of God that illumines that Word for us, opens our minds to it, opens our hearts to it. 